This is an ABC podcast. On ABC Radio National, this is Between the Lines. Hi, I'm Kylie Morris, sitting in for Tom Switzer. Thanks for joining me. Coming up in a moment, Greg Barton reviews Anthony Albanese's official visit this week to Indonesia. It's a relationship that's brimming with potential, but can it be realised? From the UK, we look at the precarious position PM Boris Johnson finds himself in to discuss the politics of contemporary Britain from a perspective way outside the Whitehall bubble. We turn to the editor of the Yorkshire Post, James Mitchinson, for his blunt assessment. But first, what happened when Prime Minister Anthony Albanese met with his Indonesian counterpart, President Jokowi Widodo, this week? Over the years, Australia's relationship with Indonesia has, let's say, ebbed and flowed. But this week, Prime Minister Albanese's official state visit sought to breathe fresh life into the relationship with one of our closest neighbours. Now, to discuss how the visit went, areas of mutual interest and the prospects for future engagement, I'm delighted to welcome Greg Barton to the program. Greg is Research Professor in Global Islamic Politics at Deakin University and Asia Society Australia Scholar-in-Residence. Greg, thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thanks very much. There is a lot on the incoming Labor government's plate internationally and domestically. Anthony Albanese was straight out the door to uh, the Quad meeting in Japan. Foreign Affairs Minister Penny Wong, of course, went straight to the Pacific to build bridges there. And this week, uh, they both travelled to Indonesia. How would you assess the meeting with President Joko Widodo and the prospects for future engagement? Look, I think in short, this is a great start. I mean, a great start is is really important. It doesn't doesn't solve the whole job, though. But it's it's you know to begin well is um, set you up for more success um, in, in terms of trust in confidence and sentiment. I think with engaging with, you know, in, in any relationship, certainly this includes international relationships, but particularly I think um, in Asia, a sense of respect and uh, passionate engagement, showing that you turn up and you care, that you value the other, that's really important. Um, you know, the visit uh, this this last week of Anthony Albanese and Penny Wong to Indonesia echoes a visit made 30 years ago by Paul Keating when he had just won an election and he sort of established a modern tradition of Australian prime ministers going off to Indonesia for the first foreign visit and other foreign, other uh, prime ministers have done this to their credit. Uh, but there was a sense of this being uh, a return to that era of passionate engagement. Uh, Paul Keating is known for being robust and occasionally uh, not just eloquent but vulgar and that's not necessarily an Indonesian cultural style, but what's most important in Indonesia is that you turn up and then you care and that you show an interest in the other. And uh, for that reason, Paul Keating was, was was much admired. That was a high point in the, in the relationship. Uh, it's not just about personal chemistry. I mean, he turned up to meet with President Suharto. That was not an easy relationship. Uh, in uh, democratic Indonesia, it's much easier. I think some of the barriers are, are lower. The opportunities are greater. Um, Indonesia, of course, has grown Tremendously in the last 30 years, it's now one of the world's um, fast-rising emerging economies. It's, it's gone past us and it's on its way perhaps to be number five or number six by the end of this decade and, and on from there. So uh, there should be a lot of opportunity, but we've not really embraced it in the last decade or two, arguably. Um, this hopefully is a, a, a return to that passionate engagement. 
do these leaders, I mean, you talk about the personalities of uh, Paul Keating and um, President Sato, but what about Albanese and uh, Wododo? Do they, I mean, we know they both ride bikes, but beyond that, do they have much in common? Well, they're, they're very different in many respects. Um, uh, uh, Widodo, Jokowi um, is a, a self-made uh, entrepreneur come uh, local mayor come president uh, coming from humble backgrounds um, hence the I think the deliberate reference to the bicycle uh, in that meeting uh, of course Anthony Albanese comes from humble backgrounds but West president Joko Widodo is is fairly much domestically focused and and in in a sense kind of concrete and transactional uh, Anthony Albanese is is more sort of big picture and, and emotion so they're different in that style and that way of operating, but uh, in other respects, quite compatible. They they both are concerned about progressive agendas. In in the case of President Widodo, it's not not as wide ranging as um, Prime Minister Albanese. Um, there's a sense in which Jokowi is a social conservative, but he still wants to get ahead and transform Indonesia so that the future Indonesia is better than the past Indonesia. So he's a progressive in that sense. He's hopeful and optimistic. And I think both leaders share that sort of hopeful, optimistic view of the world. Uh, I think uh, what we're seeing with the Albanese prime ministership is a, a sense of needing to get on and do things and change things because we can't just keep on doing things the, the way we have been doing. We've got to, you know, we've got to um, engage with uh, First Nations Australians. Uh, so he, he mentions um, the Uluru Statement from the Heart in his uh, victory speech. We've got to deal with climate change and we've got to engage with our Asia-Pacific, Indo-Pacific region. And I think there's a lot of genuine heartfelt enthusiasm, but also optimism. And I think that's just what we need. It's it's, it's where we need to be going. And of course, um, it's hard to think of a more formidable and impressive um, foreign minister than Penny Wong. It's good that she's now the third uh, female foreign minister, but our first Asian Australian foreign minister. And I think that really resonates in, in the region. And she's a nice uh, uh, match for Prime Minister Albanese in terms of being, you know, able to drill down on details and, and engage with um, really concrete issues. And I think that was well received in Indonesia. I think they're off to a good start. I mean, of course, there was the clip of, of the foreign minister speaking Bahasa, which one imagines uh, would matter and, and be noticed uh, in Indonesia. And also, of course, you know, um, Science and Innovation Minister Ed, Ed Husik, who was also part of the delegation, whose Muslim faith was of interest to the Indonesian press. Yeah, I think expectations are high about this new government, um, partly because I think Indonesians, although they're increasingly moving past Australia and we're sort of less important than we used to be, um, nevertheless, uh, for those who know Australia, uh, there's a hope that things will work better and we, we can get on to a, a better, more profound relationship. And so uh, a real sense of hope that this new government wouldn't disappoint. And I think this this first trip certainly hasn't disappointed. As you said, having Australia's uh, one of Australia's first two uh, Muslim uh, members of Parliament, uh, we have Ed Husik visiting, and, and of course, probably Anna Ali will likely visit in future. Um, having our first uh, Asian Australian Foreign Minister, having um, uh, a MP from from uh, the electorate effectively the city of Darwin, uh, Australia's closest city to Indonesia. All of these things, I think, were well judged. As, as was the fact that the visit didn't stop and start with Jakarta and the palace in Bogor, but went on to Makassar. Um, in, on the island of Sulawesi, uh, President uh, Jokowi has long spoken throughout um, both terms of his presidency about the desire for building Indonesia beyond Java, particularly East Indonesia, particularly the maritime domain. 
And so I think it was well judged to to make that visit there as well. So all, all of those things we're talking about were carefully thought out and I think have been well received. So it's a good start. Obviously, you've got to build on that good start. Of course, the trade relationship certainly has room for improvement. I mean, it's all very well talking about it's a sense of hope and optimism, which is great at the start of a relationship. But, you know, we do trade more with New Zealand and Singapore, as you've mentioned before, than we do with Indonesia. So a great deal of room for improvement. That's right. I mean, those those nations, I mean, New Zealand and Singapore, no one can argue with, with them. They're, they're, they're fond, um, fondly respected neighbours of Australia. But, I mean, they're nations of five, six million people. Indonesia is a nation of 280 million people. Now, you might say, well, of course, New Zealand and Singapore are middle class nations. But, you know, the middle class in Indonesia is probably 50, 60 million people, 10 times the size of either Singapore or New Zealand. So, it is strange that we trade more with New Zealand and Singapore than with Indonesia. Now, some might say because that's to do with complementarity of goods that we want to export and import. But I think it's really about the number of Australian companies that are engaged and people trying to find opportunities. I think those that know Indonesia really well can see um, just the great potential for growth and they've experienced it themselves. Those that don't know say, look, it's too hard, you know, an emerging economy. Um, there's lots of difficulties and the, the bureaucracy has been frustrating and you know, there's a sense about legal certainty and all sorts of reasons can be raised. Um, but the growth, not just for our region, but for the world, comes out of emerging economies. And Indonesia is no more difficult to engage with than the other members of the E7, the Emerging Economy Group. Um, of course, it's hard, but I think it's just a question of us needing to try harder. And I, I'm, I'm confident that if that happens in a sustained way, we'll find goods we want to import and goods we can export. Uh, the uh, free trade agreement that was signed in 2018 um, followed up with a, a visit by uh, President Jokowi to, to Canberra uh, just before COVID hit. Uh, that hasn't really been realised yet. So that, that's, a, that's a gift to the new government to, um, to try and put into concrete um, realisation. And, and I think that will happen to some degree. I, I think... Um, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of opportunity, some hard work required, but lots of reasons to be optimistic that something better can be made with the relationship. On ABC Radio National, this is Between the Lines. I'm Kylie Morris, and to discuss the Australia-Indonesia relationship and the PM's visit this week, I'm joined by Greg Barton, Research Professor in Global Islamic Politics at Deakin University. Greg, what's in it for Indonesia? I mean, you were describing there how, you know, the, the, the kind of potential, I guess, for Australian exporters and Australian businesses and industry, but what might we have to offer them beyond kind of beef and tourists to Bali? Look, I think with both nations, there's a gap between uh, perception and sort of broad knowledge and and reality or what, what could be achieved. So, you know, social surveys, most famously those done by the Lowy Institute, show that both nations um, have an out-of-date understanding of each other. To Indonesia's point, they can quite realistically say, why do we need to be bothering about engaging with a, a middle power to our south of just 25 million people when we've got, you know, the whole of Asia to be concerned about of several billion people and, and the world beyond? And when our own economy is bigger than Australia's, um, you know, why is Australia important? I think the reason that Australia can become increasingly important to Indonesia is because if we do the right thing and make it easy for people to travel, easier to get visas, I mean, we can travel without a prior visa to Indonesia without any trouble as Australian citizens, but it's not the same for Indonesians. They have to 
go on a, through a process that often seems Kafkaesque and can take months and is relatively expensive for them, we can easily change that and, and make it easy for them to visit. Um, one of the reasons that Indonesians might want to visit, apart from tourism, is to study. Uh, a lot of Indonesians do study in Australia, but we can, we can in- increase that number dramatically, I think, including not just with um, traditional um, study through temporary migration, but but in-country um, partnerships and sandwich programs and other creative ways. A lot of Indonesians travel too because the Indonesian healthcare system can't, can't meet the demand that's placed upon it. Uh, it's got one of the least resourced healthcare systems um, for a large country in the world. People travel for what's called medical tourism, but because of essential surgery or other treatment, they go to Singapore typically. If many more came to Australia, that would be good for us and good for them. But of course, ideally, um, we should be training more doctors, nurses, technicians, healthcare workers uh, to go back to Indonesia and, and to grow that that um, section of, of social service that's that's greatly needed. All these things, Australia is really well positioned to deliver on. You know, apart from um, traditional questions of trade, there are new areas of trade too, new even new commodities that we can see the promise of, but which have yet to be realised, in, in, including exporting electricity or you know, to put it romantically, exporting sunshine. The pr- current proposal to build a, a, a high-tension power line undersea uh, from this, uh, the Northern Territory to, to, to Java, essentially exporting solar power, could be, you know, a transformative engagement. Uh, Indonesia has a great need of power and it doesn't have enough. It relies on dirty coal generators. If we could quickly get um, solar power by a subsea cable, to Indonesia, you know, everyone would benefit, the planet would benefit. Um, so there's a lot of things that we can do more than just exporting, for example, beef or, or or wheat. And it's a question of trying to find ways of doing that. A lot of it will be in the area of information technology and, and digital economy uh, and electrification and, and knowledge. Um, but we're well positioned to do those things well. And Indonesians who have come and engaged with Australia like it and, and want it want this relationship to grow, just as those Australians who know Indonesia want the relationship to grow because they can see see the potential and see how good things can be. Greg, it's interesting to note, of course, that President Wododo has been in office since 2014. Our Prime Minister at that time was Tony Abbott. Uh, and as international politics is about building and maintaining personal relationships, does Australia's recent history of the revolving door of national leaders make it that much harder? Well, yeah, it's it, undeniably it does. I mean, there's there's no getting away from that. There's a couple of things we should take comfort in, though, and that is that Indonesia has um, not just through the, the the years of President Widodo, but but since uh, President Suharto stepped down in May 1998, has uh, continued to consolidate democracy. It's imperfect. There's a lot of things that uh, you know constantly look like two steps forward and one step backwards. But, but there's a stability in the Indonesian political system that goes beyond the president and the government of the day. And indeed, many ministers in in, um, in new governments come out of old governments. So that's a, an unusual thing from an Australian point of view, because Indonesia doesn't have this kind of political spectrum of left, right, we think, in Australia. It's a multi-complex, messy, multi-party system, maybe something that we're heading towards ourselves. But it means that um, it, it fits well with a political culture that doesn't generally tend towards permanent conflict or, uh, you know, sort of tribal clashes, but but people come and join new governments. So after President uh, uh, Joko Widodo, and and he can only serve two terms, and so his his term is coming up, um, 
uh, the next government is likely to have many of the same ministers, many of the same senior uh, bureaucrats. Uh, so there's, uh, from our perspective, looking north, there's a sense of prospect of continuity. And of course, um, DFAT and and um, our other um, you know major ministries don't change between governments. Um, that gives us some continuity. And our business sector, um, our, our journalists and writers and academics and teachers, they tend to have longer term relationships than Australian prime ministers do. So we shouldn't get too hung up on on the fact that we change prime ministers. It would probably be a good idea if we didn't do it so much in the future as we've done in the past, though that would certainly help with things like this. Uh, China, before you go, Greg, I've got to ask one question at least. Uh, China, of course, is also a very large trading partner of Indonesia's. How does Indonesia navigate its relationship with Beijing? Is there any opportunity uh, there from an Australian perspective? Yeah, there are lots of opportunities and challenges. Um, you know, one opportunity and, and challenge is to try for both of us to be less dependent on China. China has been good to Indonesia and good to Australia in as much as its economic rise has, has through its trading partners, um, you know, brought benefits. There's no denying that for all the problems. Uh, Indonesia is not as overtly anxious about uh, domestic security with respect to China as Australia is. Um, Indonesia has a, a famously ambiguous or ambivalent position on um, on being neutral, uh, and Indonesia doesn't have a pressing problem in the South China Sea, unlike its Southeast Asian neighbours that are more directly caught up in, in issues there. But, you know, if things went south with China, uh, the, the thing that we worry about is, is forced attempt at reunification of Taiwan with the mainland. That would likely, uh, has the great potential to cascade out well beyond a narrow military operation into a, perhaps a regional conflict or even a regional war, and that would certainly affect Indonesia. And Indonesia, I think at that point, uh, it doesn't say so much in public, but quietly would welcome stability um, through members of the Quad and from AUKUS and um, that that uh, that uh, sense of, of um, Asian and Western powers coming together to balance China. But Indonesia doesn't want to talk about this up front and make it the issue. And that's interesting that it wasn't the issue during this uh, first visit by Albanese and Wong to Indonesia. Um, I think that was well played because Indonesia shares many of our concerns, but it doesn't see a benefit in megaphone diplomacy. It doesn't see a sense in antagonizing China. It sees only downside. And it doesn't want to be seen as somehow only thought of as value to us as a security partner. Um, but uh, we, we face common challenges of trying to find a way of living with China, but also of growing capacity beyond just reliance upon China. Greg, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. That's Greg Barton, Research Professor in Global Islamic Politics at Deakin University and Asia Society Australia Scholar-in-Residence. On ABC Radio National, hi, I'm Kylie Morris and this is Between the Lines. Coming up... James Mitchinson, the editor of the Yorkshire Post, tells us what he really thinks about Prime Minister Boris Johnson and the Partygate scandal that almost brought him undone this week. I think what matters is what we deliver and what we do. And as a result of this decision tonight by the Parliamentary Party, which I welcome, uh, we have a conclusion uh, to something that's been dragging on for far too long and we have the ability now to unite, deliver and get on with the people's priorities. And that is what we're going to do. 
He was once the Tories' golden child. Boris Johnson, former mayor of London, seer of Brexit and enfant terrible of the conservative movement, led his party less than three years ago to its biggest electoral win in 40 years. But now, well, the British Prime Minister faces a reckoning. This week, there was a vote of no confidence, which he survived, but for how long? Time to seek out the view beyond Westminster to discover how it's come to this. James Mitchinson is the editor of the Yorkshire Post. James, thanks for joining Between the Lines. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Now, how the mighty have fallen. Were you were you surprised by the confidence or no confidence vote? Uh, I wasn't surprised that the confidence vote came about. The um, shenanigans going on in Westminster in recent days, weeks and months have led us to this point. And the confidence vote almost seemed like a natural progression of what we've witnessed in Westminster. Um, I was slightly surprised, as I think many people were, by the vast number of MPs who voted against Boris Johnson. So 148 of his, of his own MPs voted against him, stating that they have no confidence in the Prime Minister. And um, that exceeds the confidence vote, or the vote of no confidence in Theresa May, by a significant margin. She, she got 117 votes against her. So I wasn't surprised that the confidence vote came about. I was slightly surprised by the number of people who have no confidence in the Prime Minister in his own party. And um, it's telling, I think, of the disgruntlement and the, um, the increasing dismay that people see um, of Boris Johnson's actions. Um, I don't know if your listeners are familiar with the head of house, Boris Johnson's head of house, who wrote a letter home to his parents many years ago when Boris Johnson was at school. This is when he was at boarding school. It was when he was at boarding school, yeah. So um, the reason I go back to that context is I think it's important, but his um, head of house at boarding school wrote home to his parents to say that he, uh, as in Boris Johnson, um, you know, he honestly seems to think it churlish that we should hold him to the same high standards as everybody else. Now, I think that's really telling, given what we now know about what was going on in Downing Street when people were perishing in this country and all around the world owing to coronavirus. There's 180,000 people died in the UK of coronavirus, COVID-19, and that's, um, that's two full MCGs, isn't it, over in Australia? Um, that's how many people died of coronavirus. And, and yet, uh, the Prime Minister was not abiding by his own laws. He was bringing people together for boozy parties. And given that we know that contact like that in close spaces spreads the virus and could possibly kill somebody um, once passed on, um, we knew that at the time of these parties, and yet they still took place. So that that really sticks in the crore of uh, people in this country. James, when that story first broke of, of the parties going on, the social gatherings going on inside Downing Street, it felt at first like a kind of political editor's passion project, like a gotcha moment, you know, grainy photos of the Prime Minister inside Downing Street looking relaxed in the middle of COVID. But it's clearly grown to resonate with voters and is that the reason why the, the linkage that you make between the level of kind of personal suffering, of suffering within the community that was going on, that, that communities were enduring at the same time as these social gatherings were taking place? Contrast couldn't be more stark, could it? 
I lost an aunt to COVID. So um, my um, my mother's sister-in-law, she died of COVID. Um, the funeral couldn't take place as normal. We weren't able to say goodbye to her. The same story can be told in every country around the world. People, People's tales of sacrifice, people staying home. If you remember, there was... There's a slogan over here. I don't know whether your government did the same thing, but it was stay home, protect the NHS, save lives. If you go out, you will spread the virus, people will die. That They were the government slogans at the time. The fact that we now know and that we've discovered that the gatherings were taking place and they were illegal, they broke the law, and anyone else found to be doing the exact same thing at the exact same time would find themselves broken up by police officers, issued with fines, and worse. So this is what Yorkshire people think. So good, honest, hardworking people who work hard for a living, they look, they look to provide for their family, they don't break the law. Um, that really does hurt people. And what it's done is it's dissolved trust now between the government and the people of the country. And should this Prime Minister need to ask the people of this country to lock down again, should he try to take away our freedoms again, he won't be able to do it. And that that could cost lives. And that's why I think the vote of no confidence and the size of the, um, the rejection of the Prime Minister, by his own team, by the way, um, our Education Secretary came out straight after the vote uh, and said this was a handsome victory for the Prime Minister. But there was no opposition on the field. It was only his own teammates. There's no victory in it at all. It's a damning indictment of the Prime Minister. And I do, I do think that that connection is part of the problem, but I would say it's not all of the problem. So um, what, what that discovery does, what, what knowing about those parties does, is it confirms to us what kind of person he is. I think if you then go on to look at the things he's doing, so his ideas and his intentions and his actions, then you start to get a fuller picture of why people are starting to reject this Prime Minister. I'm Kylie Morris. This is Between the Lines. And you're listening to James Mitchinson, the editor of the Yorkshire Post. Talk us through the trials facing British Prime Minister Boris Johnson. James, if we can just move away from Partygate for a moment. I mean, there are other things going wrong for the Prime Minister, aren't there, currently? There's the Northern Ireland Protocol, there's inflation, energy costs, the fallout, the management of COVID. Uh, I mean, he has a whole basket full of troubles, doesn't he? Yeah, so so if I can sort of paint a picture of today, um, we are now paying £2 per litre of fuel for, uh, for diesel in this country. So the average car is now costing over £100 to fill up. That's really hurting people in the pocket. Um, you're right about inflation. It's continuing to, uh, to go up, and that's squeezing people's pockets. Um, we've got the largest rail strike looming uh, in a generation that's going to bring the country to a standstill. Um, there's, there's a variety of discontent. The, the union is, is at risk. You know, people... And you've just referenced the Northern Ireland Protocol and the uh, Belfast Good Friday Agreement. It doesn't seem sacrosanct to this Prime Minister. He seems to, um, he seems bereft of the detail, and he doesn't seem to um, treasure the, you know, the peace talks and the protocol as um, it was set out. And that's putting the union at risk. There's an interesting moment in the Prime Minister's questions yesterday. 
um, when the leader of the SNP in Blackford, um, he he was talking about... So that's the, um, Scottish, he, he, the Scottish National Party. Scottish National Party, yeah, the leader of the Scottish National Party. He said on the floor yesterday, it was, he did it seemingly in good humour, but it was facetious humour, if you like. He said, you know, all this time I thought the Tory MPs were trying to shout me down. Um, but, you know, all this time, 41% of them have been cheering me on because that's that's the number that um, voted against the Prime Minister. Um, Ian Blackford is now doubling down on Scottish independence and the Prime Minister and his actions and his seeming um, neglect of the union, and, and that relates to the Northern Ireland Protocol, is, is giving grist to the mill of Scottish independence. And a breakup of the union in this country is something that I never thought would be even possible. But here we are with um, people feeling um, enabled and permitted and energised to break up the Union of the United Kingdom. And that, that is a scary prospect because we will be poorer for it. What is Boris Johnson's future? Technically, as I understand it, he's not now meant to face another confidence vote for, for a period of time. But how likely do you think is he to uh, escape this with his political life intact? Well, history tells us not very long despite Theresa May winning her confidence vote by um, a more significant margin, I think it was precisely 20 votes, uh, stronger margin than Boris Johnson. She was only around six months afterwards. Um, so history would tell us that he's uh, a dead prime minister walking, if you like. Um, however, Theresa May always and consistently, I've met both Theresa May and Boris Johnson, by the way, um, and Theresa May struck me as an individual with much more integrity and class than Boris Johnson um, has. Uh, and I think she was always going to do the decent thing uh, when the crunch came. I don't think Boris Johnson is made of the same stuff Theresa May is, frankly. I think, I can't remember who it was, it might have been David Cameron, but somebody wants to describe Boris Johnson as a greased piglet, capable of wriggling out of all manner of problems. And it wouldn't be unlike Boris Johnson to wriggle out of this one. Of course, he does have his supporters. Uh, we we should we should mention, you know, the the for example, his or Britain's decisive support of Ukraine has uh, has found broad support um, within the UK. Boris Johnson wandering around the the streets of Kiev with uh, Vladimir Zelensky, and I guess there is a question about, you know, would another prime minister have acted in the same way? He does fancy himself as Churchillian at times. H has that played well? Uh, I think it would be uh, churlish not to acknowledge the support that the Prime Minister has offered to Ukraine um, and the the sight, the mere sight of the UK Prime Minister on Ukraine uh, alongside the, the Ukrainian uh, Vladimir Zelensky would have given the Ukrainians great hope, I would have, I would have thought. So the, this, that's to his credit, absolutely. And yes, you're right. He does he does see himself as Churchillian. And there's that famous lock, do you remember the long lens camera shot of him by the easel painting, um, you know, evoking sort of memories of when Winston Churchill did the same thing. Um, he, he does. Um, but the, the challenge is that he has previously, um, and his government have previously seemed willing to break international law. You know, when it comes to the Brexit negotiations, there's been a sort of casual and flippant regard for international law. And what that does is it 
denigrates our reputation, um, it removes the trust, it, it, it makes, um, it diminishes our status on the world stage. So um, whilst those moments, and I've no doubt that the, the UK and its Prime Minister is doing all it can to support the Ukrainians in their uh, fight against the Russian invasion, but there's so many other facets to the doubt and the challenge and the worry and the wonder about this Prime Minister's character and about the way he conducts himself, that you're always wondering what the true intent is when he, when he does something. And, and I just don't think that that merits um, a Prime Minister, frankly. And, and there may be people listening thinking, oh, crikey, this guy's has died in the wall socialist. He just wants the Conservatives out. That isn't the case. You know, I, I firmly believe in a number of Conservative ideologies. I believe in a sense... People taking a sense of personal responsibility. I think entrepreneurialism and job creation comes from, from wealth. I think, you know, pulling up the, the bottom of society by everybody doing better. You know, I believe in a number of conservative policies, but what I can't believe in is um, a thoroughly dishonest prime minister and individual running the country. I just don't think um, he can ever, again, command the faith and commitment of the people of this country. On that note, James, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. My pleasure. That's James Mitchinson, the editor of the Yorkshire Post. From Partygate to Watergate, if Nixon were around today, would he resign in the face of impeachment? And are there similarities with an investigation into President Trump's role in the January 6th insurrection? My guest in a moment on Between the Lines will be Watergate Special Prosecutor Jill Winebanks. It is 50 years since the petty crime took place that unravelled a presidency. The burglary at the Democratic National Committee headquarters inside the Watergate building in Washington, D.C. in June 1972. Now, that scandal and the peeling back of multiple layers of lies and conspiracies that followed became known as the Watergate scandal. Eventually, it cost President Richard Nixon the White House. Uh, Jill Winebanks was just 30 when the trials of the highest-ranking White House officials took place, and she was the only woman on the prosecution team. She's on the line, I'm happy to say, from Chicago and joins us to recall those heady days and maybe even reflect on the parallels of then and now. Jill, hello. Hello, and thank you for letting me be with you today. Now, can we start by you describing the role that you played at that time? I was a prosecutor uh, working for the Watergate Special Prosecution Force under Archibald Cox, who had been appointed the special prosecutor. Before that, I was a prosecutor in the Department of Justice, but this was a, an independent organization because it involved the president and the attorney general works for the president. So that's why it had to be separate. And did you have a sense at the time of what you were a part of? This might ultimately lead to the removal of Richard Nixon. 
it depends on what moment in time you are referring to. When I was first asked to join the team, I knew that there was a possibility that this was not an ordinary burglary. Uh, it seemed pretty obvious by then because the people caught inside the Democratic National Committee offices were former CIA agents, and eventually it got linked to uh, one of them also was the security chief for the committee to reelect the president, and two other people involved worked in the White House. So there was a clear link right away. So I knew it could lead higher, but we didn't know at that time. I would say we were formed at the end of May of 1973. So 11 months after the burglary, less, less than 11 months even. Um, and I would say by October, we were pretty sure. Um, by November, we were positive that we had a significant case. And in March of 1974, we used the evidence we had gathered to return indictments. We have a system in America where a grand jury a larger group than a normal trial jury, you present evidence to them and they decide whether it's probable cause to indict someone. And so the indictments were in March of 1974. How, how high did those indictments go? What, what level of government are we talking so about? So the, there had already been a trial of the men caught burglarizing and putting bugs, wiretaps, inside of the DNC. That was in January uh, of 73, they were convicted. And the ones that we indicted went up to and included the unindicted co-conspirator. And I'll explain what that is, but it included the attorney general, who was also eventually the head of the committee to reelect the president. It included a lot of assistant attorney generals and the chief of staff to the president and the chief domestic advisor to the president, and some others as well. So it was a pretty high-level group, about as you know, cabinet officer level, really close personal assistants. And the president himself was named an unindicted co-conspirator. And the reason that he wasn't indicted was that by that point, we had had a Saturday night massacre, as it is called here, in which the attorney general had been fired and Archibald Cox had been fired and a new special prosecutor had been hired because the public outrage was so significant that Richard Nixon felt he had to cave in and do a U-turn and say, I will give you the tapes you have subpoenaed and I'll appoint a new special prosecutor. And uh, Mr. Jaworski felt that the only way to proceed was through impeachment. And so we got a compromise where we gave evidence with court permission because the evidence is obtained under grand jury secrecy. But we, you have a legal way of asking the court to approve the release of it. And that went to the House Judiciary Committee that was holding impeachment hearings and led to his impeachment. And uh, which is different than conviction. He was impeached by the House and he resigned before going to trial because the Republican members, his own party, 
said that he would not survive, that they would vote. They had seen the evidence and they would vote to convict him. And so he he resigned. Jill, the Senate Watergate hearings were a really big deal, weren't they? They were televised nationally across three networks. Yes. I think research suggests that an average family watched at least 30 hours of proceedings. So it was a scandal playing out in people's living rooms by that stage. But it seems he still came very close to surviving. There never seemed to be any real guarantee that he'd be out of office. That is true. And I'll tell you what changed that was the the hearings started exactly at the time that we were appointed. So we were operating simultaneously and trying to make sure that they didn't do something that would hurt our case and that we didn't do something that would hurt them. Uh, And it was going along very, very well. Uh, And then Alexander Butterfield testified after John Dean, and John Dean was a magnificent witness Then Butterfield testified that there were actually tape recordings of meetings that had been testified to, which John did not know existed until uh, it was revealed by Mr. Butterfield. And we had initially subpoenaed just nine tapes. And that led to a very big uproar, which included the Saturday Night Massacre, in which the president you know, fired, as I said, the, the special prosecutor and his own attorney general and his deputy attorney general. And we then finally got some of those tapes. And the reason we didn't get them all is that he finally had to go to court and say, there are two that are missing for technical reasons. And one has an 18 and a half minute gap in it. And then he eventually blamed Rosemary Woods, his assistant, for having erased it. And I got to cross-examine her. And then we got enough evidence to return the indictments in March. So that was October. November was the tapes hearings. March, we return indictments. And immediately we subpoenaed 64 additional tapes for the trial. When in it, and the trial was supposed to start on September 1st, we got those tapes, one of which was the one that is known as the smoking gun tape. Because in it, you can hear the president say, let's just use the CIA to stop the FBI from investigating the chain of money. Because the burglars were caught with $100 bills, fresh, sequential, serial numbered dollar bills, $100 bills in their clothing. And if you had traced that dollar bills, you would have been able to trace it to the account of one of the burglars in Florida, and you would have been able to find that it came from cashing a check that was written to the committee to reelect the president. So that would have been immediate proof that the burglars were paid by what is known as CREEP, Committee to Reelect the President. And they were very desperate to prevent that knowledge from getting out. And you can hear the plot. Let's use the CIA the Central Intelligence Agency, let them say that it's national security and the FBI can't investigate the money. And of course, obviously, eventually that didn't happen. Follow the money became one of the uh, mantras of the investigation. And it follows even today to the Trump investigation, follow the money is often said. There are so many parallels, Jill, aren't they, to um, 
today's America. Of course, the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection, holding hearings to be televised again in prime time. Democrats on that committee say the hearings will reveal evidence of an organised coup attempt involving President Donald Trump, his closest allies and the supporters who attacked the Capitol as they tried to overturn the 2020 election results. So given your experience, all of those years of sifting through evidence and investigating the behaviours of senior members of government in connection with Richard Nixon's corruption, did you expect that the Trump presidency would come, would return to a moment like this? Well, let me start by saying I think that this is much worse. In the Nixon administration, first of all, there were some accomplishments. And as much as he was a crook and a criminal and obstructed justice, he created our Environmental Protection Agency. He opened China. He uh, passed Title IX, which is equality in sports, uh, gender equality. But he clearly had a a fatal flaw and believed that if he did it, as he said to David Frost, if I do it as president, then it's not illegal. Basically, the president's above the law and can do anything. That is a horrible, horrible attitude and philosophy. In terms of Donald Trump, we saw, I saw evidence of his amoral and corrupt character from the very beginning from how he talked, from the day he announced his uh, run for the presidency, how he talked about Mexicans was disgusting to me. How he said, I could kill somebody on Fifth Avenue, I could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue, and I wouldn't lose a single vote. And unfortunately, he was right. How he could say and be seen, taped on video and audio, saying, and I won't repeat the exact words, I can grab a woman's private parts at any time and I can get away with it because I'm a celebrity. And there were rape allegations against him and sexual assault allegations. And each time one of those came out, I thought this is the end of his candidacy, but it wasn't. His supporters simply do not care. So now you come forward to this and and he doesn't care. He, He has no embarrassment. He has no sense of shame it seems to me. Whereas in Watergate, Nixon ended up resigning in shame and he felt ashamed. Um, And he also was a realist because, and here's the big difference between them. Back then we had only three networks and all of them had the same facts. There was no dispute. There was no Fox News which is not broadcasting these hearings. So its audience will not even hear them. They will talk about it in very different terms. Their audience believes the election was stolen, that the people in the Capitol were not violent, despite the fact that death and mayhem occurred. And so if you don't agree on the facts, as was done then, then nothing that's presented is going to make any difference. Back in Watergate, People actually shared facts. Now we have what is being called alternative facts. But there is no such thing. Think about it philosophically. A fact is a fact, and there's no alternative to that. There are alternative opinions about what the fact may mean. But the fact itself 
cannot change. It's immutable. Jill, to that point, Margaret Sullivan, who's an opinion writer on the Washington Post, has written of Watergate that the nation that came together to force a corrupt president from office and send many of his co-conspirators to prison is a nation that no longer exists. If I can just read this quote to you, she says, it was a time when we had a news media that commanded the trust of the general public, a necessity in helping bring Nixon to justice. That, at least during his presidency, was never possible with Trump. As we remember Watergate, we ought to remember how very unlikely its righteous conclusion would be today. Richard M. Nixon's presidency would have survived. Do you agree with that view? Completely. Totally. 100% correct. There's no doubt in my mind. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing to say except it's stunningly shocking that that is true, but it is. I have tried to engage on occasion with Trump supporters, and they have no facts. And when you say to them, well, you actually believe that Donald Trump won the election? Oh, absolutely. I said, and based on what fact? And they'll say, because the Democrats flipped the votes. They had machines that were built to flip votes that were cast for Donald Trump to Biden. And I would say, well, you know, they brought that to 60 different courts and it was thrown out every time because there is no evidence of that. And you know that the ninjas who were hired to do a recount in Arizona actually found more votes for Biden than he had started with. And she said, that's not true. All of that is just not true. I don't believe that. I believe that the Democrats manipulated the vote. Well, there's no evidence of that. So you can't continue that conversation. There's no way to have it if there's no fact behind it. Jill, in your book, you've written about your experiences. The book's entitled Watergate Girl. And you reveal also how it felt to be a young woman actively engaged in these kind of full-throttle power politics and courtroom drama at a time when really women weren't expected to be on the front line of history. Being the first is very hard. Being subjected to sexism is very hard. And as you pointed out, my book is called The Watergate Girl. And when the publisher first suggested that, I said, no way will I let girl be in the title. Then my editor said, what captures the era better than the word girl? And I immediately agreed that he was completely right. I was called girl. Headlines included things like the miniskirted lawyer today questions so-and-so. But what I wore came before what I did. And um, there's a new history book out uh, written by Garrett Graff about Watergate. And if you look at the index under my name, the first reference says the, appear- the physical appearance of. And if you go to that page, it says, and it quotes all the things that were in the papers, peaches and cream skin, um, mini skirted. Uh, I, I can't remember all the descriptions, but it's, it's humiliating and horrible. And I'm glad that we've gotten away from that and made some progress. And it was a time when I didn't have any peers to help me through this. I worked 100%. I was the only woman. And so it was, it was very hard. 
Watergate, of course, Jill, has spawned a thousand copycat scandals, all with gate tagged on the end. Russiagate for Trump, Partygate now in the UK. Yes. Does that annoy you? Does it does it dilute the corruption of the original? No, I don't think so. And of course, I would say Russiagate and Insurrection Gate certainly exceed Watergate in terms of the horrendous consequences because now our democracy is at risk. The things that I think you will see in these hearings coming up will include a plot and a through line, a conspiracy to overturn the votes of millions of Americans to put in place the loser of the election. And they have gone beyond what happened in the last election. And as we face the 2024 election, they are preparing to control states in a way that will allow the states to stop the confirmation of the vote of people and say, we don't like that vote. We're a Republican state. And I don't care that the Democratic candidate won. We're going to send electors in a stupid system that America has of an electoral college instead of a direct vote. Um, and that terrifies me. That's what keeps me awake at night, is that we won't be a democracy at all. We'll be an authoritarian dictatorship that installs whoever it wants as the leader of the country instead of paying attention to the votes that you know hundreds of millions of people cast. Jill, so much to pay attention to. Thanks for speaking to us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. That's Jill Winebanks, once an assistant Watergate special prosecutor, who, of course, went on to serve as general counsel of the US Army, solicitor general of Illinois, and sat on the executive of the American Bar Association. I should add that book about her Watergate experiences, The Watergate Girl, is published by St. Martin's Press. And that's the show. Thanks for your company. I'm Kylie Morris, sitting in for Tom Switzer. I'll be back next week with more from Between the Lines here on ABC Radio National. Until then, bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.